Welcome in to another edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and then Gainesville, Florida has the home field advantage today because not only do we have Kyle Crooks from Gainesville as always, but in the center of the screen, we have Mike Morgan, who's in town to call some Gators football this weekend. What's going on, Mike? Uh, I'm living the dream, guys. Just uh, another day in the life of an announcer during COVID where, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of the rules are being changed as we go along, right? So we're ordinarily this is uh, less than 48 hours or about 48 hours from kickoff. By now, we would have met with some uh, coaches or at least would have done it tomorrow in person. Instead, everything's on a Zoom call. So we're going to talk to Missouri coaches on a Zoom call. We're going to talk to Florida coaches on a Zoom call uh, and players presumably on a Zoom call. We won't meet with any of them. And then uh, we'll get ready to to do a game uh, on site, but socially distanced in front of a crowd that normally would be 90,000 here. Uh, instead, we'll be in the neighborhood of 18. So everything's a little bit, a little bit different. But uh, as I like to say in the year of 2020, embrace the weird. And that's what I'm trying to do uh, each and every week. That's right. I mean, everything has been weird about this year and especially day of game, right, Mike? Because you have the storylines that you have prepared for a game. And then all of a sudden, I've had this in a smaller scale with the soccer games I've done with SEC Network Plus, where all of a sudden four starters are out or this star didn't make the trip or this coach is in quarantine. How much do you have to be on your toes day of just because the whole focus of the broadcast can shift just like that right before kickoff? Uh, you are so right. Uh you, you, you do all this preparation and you, you feel like at bare minimum, you know what the depth chart is going to look like. You don't know what the game's going to, you know, how that's going to unfold. Uh, but you know the starter at every position position and you know the backup at every position. That's not necessarily the case. Um, as we all know, Florida hasn't played a game in three weeks. Uh, they've had several positive tests. Missouri has had some positive tests. Uh, both coaches acknowledge they're going to be playing shorthanded Saturday, but neither of them will tell us who that's going to be that's out. And that's not to, uh, you know, be coy with us or to deny us the information. It's because they don't want the other side to know. In today's day and age of, of COVID athletics, uh, what your opponent doesn't know won't hurt you. And so it's a cat and mouse game. They don't want to reveal any information. And usually, you know, coaches trust us with that type of info. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to have kind of information that we're privy to that, that nobody else knows. And we do a good enough job of keeping it under wraps. But I think during this time, everybody is just so paranoid that they don't want to tell us. So the toughest job on Saturday after kickoff won't belong to me. Uh, it won't belong to Hudson Mason, my analyst. It's going to belong to Taylor Davis, our sideline reporter, because her job, as she knows, is to find out whatever she can before the kickoff. And then if we still don't know, to find out who's actually on the field and who's out shortly after kickoff. That's going to be her challenge. Whether or not she can still get all that info is going to be uh, something that we all find out during the course of the game. And now, Mike, is this the first game that you're – have you been doing games on-site uh, all year for football? Both. I have done games on-site, and I have done uh, games off-site. In fact, the first game I did uh, in the SEC was Texas A&M Vanderbilt in week one of the conference slate. During that game, I was at the SEC studios in Charlotte and basically a, a makeshift studio the size of a closet. My analyst was Andre Ware. He was at his house in Houston. Our sideline reporter was on the field. My stat guy was in Miami, texting me info as the game went along. And my spotter was at the stadium and superimposing whatever he saw on his board on what we call an Elmo cam, which looks down at his board, relays the signal across to Charlotte to my laptop where I can see who he pointed to, who made the catch, who made the tackle. That's how we did it. I've never done a broadcast, anything like that in my life, high school, college, NFL, nothing. Uh, it's challenging. It's unique. Uh, again, embrace the weird. And that's what we did. 
thankfully in this one, we're all on site and uh, there, there'll be some unique challenges, but nothing to me is harder than calling a game when you're not actually there. Uh, you know, you can fake it till you'll make it. But the fact of the matter is it is different. And I think uh, if you do a really good job, the audience won't tell a whole lot. But I think for the most part, you're always going to notice you're a split second behind what you normally would be. You don't see all the angles of the field. Uh, you don't get the information you normally do. It's, it's just different. So I am very thankful to be actually here, and I'll be at the Swamp on Saturday to broadcast the game. We're certainly excited for that. You know, Kyle and I, with our jobs at Alabama and Florida, it's just kind of waiting on some of the schedules to come back for the sports we cover. But what was the summer like for you, kind of looking at all the college football news and kind of wondering, will I get to do what I love to do coming up this fall? Because you, like us, had a lot of assignments you missed out on last spring when everything shut down. Roger, I'll I'll back it all the way up to where my life changed uh, and so many of our lives changed, and that was March 12th. Yeah. I'm in Nashville. I'm ready to call the first two games of the SEC basketball tournament. Uh, I am with uh, Jimmy Dykes, Marty Smith. And if you remember, the night before, they announced that there would be no fans allowed. So we were going to broadcast the first ever SEC tournament game in an empty arena. And that was going to be a unique challenge in itself, right? Uh, You don't have the band. You don't have uh, cheering, nothing. It's 18,000 empty seats. And you've got meaningful games, again, in the SEC tournament. The game started at noon Central Time, Nashville time. We're already there, decked out in our suits. Marty Smith was going to do live reports uh, from downtown Nashville, where all the fans actually were. They were going to watch us on TV. So he was going to be the man in the crowd. And we were going to be, of course, in an empty arena with two teams calling the game. And at about 11.15, 11.20, I looked to my right, and it was Bob Kessling, who I've known for years, uh, radio voice of Tennessee. And he looks at me, and he starts shaking his head, and he goes, no, Mike, no. And that's when I knew the plug had just been pulled. So at that point, uh, we went into reporter mode. So I had to stand up behind one goal. Carl Ravitch was behind another goal. And we were told, be ready for sports center updates, be ready for anything. And, uh, you know, Carl did most of the heavy lifting on that. And Carl and Marty who were, you know, great at that sort of thing. And uh, I was kind of on standby, still in shock of everything. And finally, the reality hit, okay, basketball season is over. Then go back to the hotel. And within hours, they just announced the World Series was canceled. Well, as you know, I do both those sports. And so I realized, okay, I just lost 35 baseball broadcasts. <laughs> We're on a roll here. What a day March 12th is. Uh, and from that moment on, I just kind of hoped that somehow things would change miraculously. You don't think logically at that point. You're, you're thinking with your heart. You're thinking with your emotions. And you're saying, well, uh, this thing hopefully will pass and we can delay this and we can delay that. And if you remember, there was even talk about the SEC just having a conference baseball season and an SEC championship, even if there was no Omaha. And I was like, okay, fine, we'll do that. But that, of course, didn't come to fruition. And then the summer goes on and, you know, you're, you're running out of things to do. Uh, my house has never looked cleaner. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're just you're scratching your head. You have all these people telling you football shouldn't be played. And these are people I respect, by the way. These are college football writers. But I, I, I got to be honest with you, it, it, it kind of put me off a little bit. I didn't realize uh, I, I didn't see a reason why it couldn't be played. And I'm thankful people like Greg Sankey uh, did not throw the, the, the towel in that used logic, uh, used uh, a little bit of common sense and a whole lot of patience to make sure we did this as best as we could. You knew it was never going to be ideal. Nothing about 2020 is ideal. But there was no reason why we couldn't have sports again come the fall. And thankfully, we have them. And I'm still getting used to it, guys. It, it doesn't feel all the way there. But I made a pact with myself. If we had games, I was not going to complain about anything because I'm just so thankful that we have them. 
Yeah, certainly. Amen to that. We've certainly seen that in the work that Kyle and I have done over the last few weeks. And uh, that's kind of where we are now. You're getting to be at the Swamp coming up and you are a Florida graduate. And I'm curious, we're talking about your career now, but what was the spark? What did you what first kind of got on your radar about sportscasting and something you wanted to do? Well, you know, I guess I was kind of a different kid in some respect. Uh, Like a lot of kids, I played sports. I played a lot. I played high school football and basketball down in South Florida. Uh, we, those weren't great teams I played on, we, but we got our butts kicked by some really good athletes throughout, uh, uh, Palm beach, Broward, Dade County. Uh, those, those were pretty legit, but I, I knew early on that I wasn't going to be uh, getting a full ride anywhere. So, um, you know, when I was about 12 years old under the Christmas tree was a, a video camera and this was before, you know, everybody now has a cell phone. You can record this, you can record that back then. That was like a big deal. Like that was not the, the guy next door didn't have a video camera, but it was the one gift that, that as a family we got, and I immediately gravitated toward it. Uh, I always loved sports, and at about age 12, I decided that that really was my passion. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into broadcasting. Um, went to Florida because they have a great journalism and broadcasting program, as your cohort knows. Um, so I not only was it relatively inexpensive because it was in-state tuition, uh, you know, I, I didn't have some of the money these, these Syracuse kids have with mommy and daddy paying for everything. Uh, I put myself through college, to, took out a lot of student loans, went to what I considered was as, as good a broadcasting school as there was in the country, um, worked at the campus radio and TV station throughout my entire time there, worked for the cable access station doing high school football games of the week, and just continued to, uh, to do that and pursue the goal like, like we all do. Uh, when I graduated, I was just talking to the students today on campus about how that first job very often is the most difficult to get. And I sent out tapes after I graduated for about three months before a, a gentleman who was a program director at a brand new sports station in Columbus, Georgia, said, we, you're, you're the guy we want. We're, we want to go local. We don't just want to play a bunch of national shows and gave me the keys to the afternoon drive show. Uh, I was the number two banana on minor league baseball, the Columbus Red Sticks, and uh, did the high school football game of the week in western Georgia and eastern Alabama. And for a 21, 22-year-old, that was my gold mine. I mean, I, I was happier as can be. Didn't make much money, uh, but ramen noodles and, and the joy of being behind the microphone was all I needed at that time, and that just helped pave the way for other opportunities. I'm interested. What was your time like at Florida, especially at uh, I assume you worked at WRUF. Did you did you work with Steve Russell? I know he, he kind of mentors a lot of the students. So what kind of practical experience did you get when you were here? I was very fortunate back then. I mean, Steve was was there, but it was more Larry Vitell. Uh, Larry Vitell, for those that don't know, back when there was the Sunshine Network, you know, before there was the SEC Network, we had CSS, which guys like me and many others did work for Maria Taylor, et cetera. Uh, and there was the sunshine network, which, which did all, all these Florida, Florida state games. <clears throat> and so he not only was the sports director at, at RUF, the campus radio station, uh, he also did all the Florida football games, either pay-per-view or tape delayed, much like I did for South Carolina when I was with CSS and Fox, uh, Southeast, uh, and, and he also hosted a midday sports talk show. So I learned really as much from him as anybody. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't him constantly critiquing your work and going over tapes. And it, basically, you learn, he would throw you in the fire. And you learned by making your own mistakes and figuring out what was what. So I got a chance to do play by play for, say, for example, the Orange and Blue uh, game. I mean, I, I, I called Fred Taylor running for touchdowns in the in the spring football game uh i call it exhibition basketball games the year they went to the final four under lon kruger that was my beat as a freshman was covering that team i got a chance to call some games called a few gator baseball games uh and then my senior year was the first year they allowed the students to actually host a sports talk show and i hosted a show called the cheap seats and that was a huge opportunity uh, to, to be a student and to be able to do a show. And again, this was not just a student station. I mean, RUF is a, uh, they, they sell advertising. They, they do everything an actual uh, radio station in any given market would do. 
So I got a chance to do all that. So by the time I was you know, 21 years old with a diploma in hand, I actually had some experience on radio and TV working for the campus radio and TV stations and got to cover Steve Spurrier playing for national championships, SEC championships every year, Final Four in basketball, College World Series in baseball. Uh, for, for a kid who grew up an SEC fan, more so Auburn than Florida, but still an SEC fan, uh, it, was, it was a dream come true to be able to do all that at such an early age. And um, Roger, selfishly, I want to ask this question about um, just what it was like to cover those Spurrier teams, you know, the the fun and gun offense, him, you know, essentially doing a, a kind of a routine in front of the reporters. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 Spurrier. He's just a different yeah. guy. So what was it like to be around that? I I get asked that question a lot. And I I always think to myself because I, you know, I consider myself still relatively young in this business in a lot of ways. But then I think if you're 20 something years old, and you weren't around for the years that Spurrier dominated the SEC in the 90s, then you really, like, you know he won a lot of games, and you know he won a lot of trophies. But what your average 22-year-old maybe doesn't know is how he revolutionized the way the SEC played football. When I grew up watching SEC football, whether it was Auburn with Bo, Florida with Emmett, all those good Alabama teams with various running backs, uh, Tennessee, everybody was run first, pass second. And the passing offense was kind of rudimentary when you look at it now. Steve Spurrier came into that league in 1990, and SEC defensive coordinators, very established, competent people, had no idea how the hell to defend that offense. Not a clue. And to watch them week in, week out, roll up five touchdown passes, six touchdown passes, 500 yards, not against Ball State, but against the cream of the crop of the SEC, no one had ever seen anything like it. it, it it's, it's never going to happen again where a coach comes into this league and changes the absolute platform of how the game is played the way Steve Spurrier did. So, yeah, he's only got one national championship. Uh, you know, Nick Saban is in a whole other – Nick Saban's going to go down as the greatest football coach of all time. I think most of us would, would say that. But no one had a greater effect on the way the game is played, both in the SEC and nationally, the way Steve Spurrier did when he reinvented how offense was played at this level. Let me ask you this, too, just to encapsulate everything. What does it mean to you to come back and now call football games here at your at your alma mater? You know, you're a student here. You were grinding it out. Now you're coming back, talking to students about the journey, and you're going to get a chance to step in the TV booth and, and be the guy for the game on television for the Florida Gators. What does that mean to you? Well, it's always fun to come back. Um, it's not the first time I've done it. You know, I've, I've done a few games here, both on TV uh, and on national radio, just games of the week type thing. Uh, but, you know, there's there's always a bit of deja vu, even though I look around and, my goodness, the city has changed dramatically. Uh, I mean, that could be said of a lot of SCC towns. When I go to Tuscaloosa, I'm like, is this the same town? <laughs> um, I've watched this entire conference, uh, these cities transform from tiny little college towns to cities where there's actually – some stuff going on and there's good restaurants and things to do. Uh, and of course the, the, the arms race with the facilities, it's ridiculous everywhere you go, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's always a neat feeling and it, it brings you back into a place in time. You know, it's weird for me. Uh, I make the, the rounds 14 SEC cities, 12 of which I've been traveling to for a number of years. And whether it's Gainesville to where obviously I have special memories here, or Columbia, South Carolina, where for years I called Gamecock games on radio and TV. Uh, I've got a number of friends around this conference, uh, a number of great memories. So those two spots in particular uh, stand out just because of what I was able to do in those cities. It, it's always going to have a, a special place in my heart, uh, the, the markets in particular. Um, but overall, I mean, I, that's where I think, and you guys can relate to this because you're both SEC guys, right? 
I the the number one thing I get from people when they watch a, a broadcast and and they and they hear me on the game is that you know Mike, what I love about you is that you eat, sleep, and breathe SEC, and you we're all talented enough where we can parachute into a given city, and we can study up on the history and the teams, and then we can go on air and sound uh, prepared and intelligent about the the particular uh, conference and the good particular teams and some of the history but there's no substitute for if you've actually been there if you're a graduate and you've covered this league for a long amount of time and you you know certain names certain stories that are not going to be in those game notes that we study before doing a broadcast but you know because you've been a fan of the league your whole life and and i don't think you can take a crash course in that so I, I think people really appreciate when they see or hear a voice that they know is truly enriched in the fabric of SCC sports and the history of this conference. Uh, I, I think that means more, quite frankly, to a lot of fans out there. People say the SCC, it, it just means more. <laughs> I think having announcers that, that truly understand everything about this league and have covered it and have been there, that means more to your average viewer or listener. Yeah, no one wants to hear Jordan Hare Stadium. It's Jordan. Yeah. It's one of those things you just got to know. And that's it, yeah. Roger, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's been so many. Or sometimes, I mean, you could tell like a guy is just reading it straight off page 12 of the game notes, but he really has no idea what he's talking about. It's like, I can read you something out of a science journal, but I have no idea what the heck it really means, but I can try and fake it. But I, I think at the end of the day, SEC fans – I don't want to say this fan is better than that fan or whatnot, but I will say this. SEC fans on the whole, because I do other conferences as well, are the most knowledgeable on top of everything, not just about their school. There's a reason why even fans of of another team will will root for uh, an opponent in the SEC. They'd rather chant SEC, SEC. It's better my brother win it then somebody I don't know is the way a lot of SEC fans look at it. Well, that's the way they look at this league. They, they don't just know their own team. They know the SEC as a whole. They, they get it. And I think they love to get uh, their information from people who also get it, who also have the same passion for the league that we do. Totally agree. And going back to your career arc, you get that small station experience, can do a lot of different things. But what were some of the networking things you did to kind of move up the ladder as you continued on your broadcasting journey? Uh, you know, I think the, when I when I worked in Columbus, so I went to every SEC media day. Uh, I went to every SEC championship game. Of course, back then, uh, Alabama was in a lot of them. And uh, it, 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 they were they were always uh, in Atlanta, and they were uh, very often you know they were very often big games that I found an excuse to go cover. I'd get this get in the station van and and drive to to Tuscaloosa or to Auburn, what have you. Um, and that's the thing, like you can't network if you only stay at home. You know, uh, technology is making it such where nowadays I don't know if. If, if we're going to get, eliminate radio studios and opposed to just having people do their talk show from home, I mean, we know we can do it. The three of us are doing this right now. We're all in different cities. We're all looking at a laptop screen and, and talking to one another. You couldn't have done this 10 years ago. You know, we, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, so I do worry about that a little bit. I, I think if you want to network and you really want to get out there, uh, you need to be seen. You need to cover events, even if you're not doing play-by-play for it, if that's your if that's your typical, uh, uh, if that's your passion and that's what you're trying to, to get into, you still need to go and cover stuff and be out there, talk to other announcers, uh, you know, learn things about that. I mean, my, my journey is not going to be the same as everybody else's. I, I feel like I got fortunate on that first job, and then I did enough good things where uh, the, the job at, at South Carolina became open, and I didn't know how long I was going to stay there. But the job kept getting better and better, and I kept getting promoted, and therefore I, I stayed and learned to love it. And and then at that point, uh, uh, out of the blue, I'm, I'm covering a Super Bowl in Miami. I'm on Radio Row for that whole week. I'm at a Dunkin' Donuts drive through window. Uh, three rainbow sprinkle and a side of bacon if you're scoring at home. And <laughs> I get a phone call 
from the director of broadcasting from the Atlanta Braves, and he says, we have an opening to call some games on radio and TV and also do the, the pre- and post-game show. Would you be interested? I thought it was a friend of mine playing a, a practical joke. I did not know there was an opening. I did not apply for an opening. Uh, he insisted that it was for real and that they had heard good things from who I still don't know. Uh, and that, would you be interested in interviewing? I said, well, I'm going to be at the Super Bowl in Miami on Sunday night. They said, how about Monday? I said, well, I drove here. I didn't fly. It's like a 10 hour drive. They said, we'll see you at five o'clock then Monday. So I woke up crack of dawn after the Super Bowl, Drew Brees beats Peyton Manning. Uh, the Saints knock off the Colts. Great Super Bowl. Uh, I barely slept that night for multiple reasons. Got in my car at 5 in the morning, drove I-95 northbound up to 75, up to Atlanta. Uh, got the interview. Got a follow-up interview. Uh, beat out some really talented announcers who are still doing it today. And got the job. And then they wanted me to move to Atlanta. I said yes. Got a chance to call Major League Baseball, which was a bucket list thing for me with Don Sutton uh, on radio, with Brian Jordan on TV, and then uh, started to get more and more ESPN work, uh, and then eventually hired an agent, and then eventually became full-time with ESPN, where I'm no longer juggling seven different things in the air, which a lot of us do in this business, as you guys know. You just you take whatever opportunities come your way. And then finally, now I'm able to focus on one, which is ESPN and the SEC network. But uh, some of that was networking and, and a lot of it, quite frankly, was you just work hard and you keep doing your thing and you hope that you catch a break here and there and people will discover uh, what you can do. And if the right people like how you sound and, and how you work, uh, then hopefully you get, you get the right opportunity and, and you're able to cash in. And that, that's kind of how it's worked out for me. Everybody's path, like I said, is different, but that's, that's really been the, the path for me. What can you tell us about your time at South Carolina? That's a school that does have a very proud broadcasting tradition. And for you coming there, maybe a little bit of an outsider, you'd obviously been familiar with the SEC, but what was it like kind of learning that fan base and learning what was important to them in that role? I tell you, I'm, I'm still so grateful to South Carolina fans today because they accepted me, even though I was not one of their own. Uh, they knew I was an SEC guy, but I certainly had no ties to the state the city, nothing. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever been to South Carolina more than driving through the state on I-95 when my family moved to Florida. Um, and in a short amount of time, uh, on the morning talk show, I felt as if they, they respected my knowledge and they respected my ability uh, to break things down and to entertain, as you guys know, some of it's entertainment. And then the more and more play-by-play -play I did, the more and more they wanted to see me expand. Um, you know, I started off doing baseball. That was kind of in the job when I got there. And then I was told <clears throat> there'd be a good chance that you'd be doing men's basketball shortly thereafter. And then that happened. And then uh, a lot of people wanted me to do the football job on radio, but they hired a former football player to do play-by-play, -play, which is almost unheard of in our business. Uh, but you're not going to win that battle, right? So that was a, a lot of people were disappointed for me when that happened. But for me, it was an opportunity because around that time is when they started broadcasting all the games on either tape delay or pay-per-view. So naturally, I was the guy for that. Uh, so that gave me my first taste of television. I hadn't done TV since the high school football game of the week in Gainesville uh, on Cox Cable. And, and I, the more I did it, the more I fell in love with it. And the more I realized, okay, if, if my opportunities come on the TV side, that might be ultimately where I want to be. Uh, and so anyway, as time went on, that happened. But, but the Gamecock fan base, if you do a good job, they'll love you no matter where you're from. And they were extremely passionate. I still hear from them now. I mean, I, to this day on Twitter, what have you, uh, I'll hear from Gamecock fans. Wish you were here. Uh, thank you for so many memories. They'll, they'll remember a call that I made 15 years ago. Uh, so you, whenever you can go to a market and kind of leave your mark, uh, it's, it's a great feeling. And 
it didn't happen overnight, but in a short amount of time, I felt like I was accepted in, in their, their culture of athletics with that program. What do you remember? And you mentioned the transition from radio to TV, and, and it is a difficult one because you feel the need to speak on television when you're a radio guy when you don't have to. Um, how, how was that transition for you? How tough was it? Uh, I, here's what I, well, to answer your question, it, it is the transition. You're right. Uh, you do talk less and you know, when you're doing play by play on radio, you're the show. I mean, with all due respect to the analyst without you, the, the listener has no idea what's going on. So while you want both a good play by play guy and a good analyst, we all want that. Uh, if you have a poor play-by-play guy on radio, you could have the best analyst in the world, and the broadcast is going to suffer because the the listener driving around in his car is going to have no idea what's going on. In TV, the skill is less about painting the picture because obviously you can see it, but it's about processing what's happening, calling it, and then also finding a way to set up your analyst and you're, you're able to involve more stories on, te- on television because there's more time where I don't have to set up every specific thing that's going on. The audience can see that. So now I can give you more background on this player, on this coach, on this rivalry. We can roll in uh, certain stories or, or sound bites. We can do a telestrator. You're you're more of a conductor when you're doing television at that point. You've got someone in your ear talking all the time. That was the biggest transition, because in radio, no one's talking in your ear. You, you again, you're driving the ship. You when it's ready to go to break, you go to break. Somebody in your ear will tell you when the commercial's over, and then you talk again. In TV, there is someone talking in your ear throughout the broadcast. And when I first started doing it. It would distract me. I, I wanted to say, hey, can you stop talking while I'm broadcasting the game? But you can't do that because in TV, the producer is very important. And you need to hear what he has to say. You need to find out, are we going to replay? Are we going to a promo? Uh, you need to hear if there's a countdown for this, that, or the other. So that's the biggest challenge is to turn that one-way transistor into a two-way rans- transistor uh, and just to – be able to be a little bit more creative. I think the preparation for TV is a little bit different than radio in that respect. Uh, and obviously, you know, an, another big difference, of course, is when you're broadcasting games for a particular team, you know, the audience is there to, to hear about the team. You're, you're their guy. They, they see uh, th- that team through your, through your eyes, and it's all about them. Yeah, you want to know some about the opponent, and I always took pride in and actually doing a lot of prep work on the opponent as well. I didn't want to just do a one-sided broadcast. I thought that was selling the audience short. But it's nothing like doing TV where it's truly down the middle. None of us have any rooting interest. All we want is a close, competitive game and a clean broadcast. That is what we pull for each and every time. And so from all those aspects, it's just a different animal. And on television, how long did it take you to, to get over the 10, 15 seconds of nothing being okay? <laughs> I felt like it was awkward. It's like, man, do I, the ball's on the wing. Do I need to say something? Right. Do I have to throw in this nugget here? And, and also being able to get in stories, weaving in stories without, you know, trying to wedge something in while a touchdown pass is being thrown. You know, how long did it kind of get the timing down of everything? You know, in my mind, you're, you're still perfecting that. I don't know if you ever perfect that. Uh, You get conflicting messages uh, sometimes when you're a play-by-play guy. Uh, On one hand, they will tell you, to your point, let it breathe. Let it breathe. You don't have to discuss every part of the broadcast. Don't be too chatty. On the other hand, the audience expects to hear something from you. Uh, They want to be informed. They want to know that you're actually involved in the game and in the process so you can't just sit there and and mime it uh and you don't want to be talking too much where you're taking away from it that is a delicate balance that you cannot pick up in a manual you cannot be taught that in a classroom or at a seminar so much of it is feel 
and the longer I do this, the more feel that I have of, okay, this is when I need to talk and this is when I need to shut up. And there's some of that in radio too, of course, but I think it's more so in TV when to just pipe down and not say anything. Your point about the stories, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because someone in the in the journalism class asked me that today, same thing. Because we all want, we, we do all this prep work and we find these magnificent stories, or at least what we think are magnificent, <laughs> and and we we want to get them in there. You know, we think it's interesting and, and we, we uncovered this jewel of a story and we want to get it in there. But you can't shoehorn it in there because there's nothing more frustrating to the viewer or the listener when a big play is happening and you're you're not even noticing it because you're too busy in the middle of the story that you felt compelled to get in the broadcast. That will get people upset and justifiably so. So they want they want to hear stories and they want to learn something and, and have unique uh, information, but they don't want it to take away from the most important thing, which is the call of the action on the field. So again, no manual for that. You just have to have a sense of, okay, here's my moment. This is where it's actually relevant. This player who just made a play happens to have a story that we have and most of our audience doesn't know yet. Let's get it in here now. But then let's get out before the next big play happens. And let's get our analyst involved. Let's get our sideline reporter involved. Sometimes it's a story that all of us are going to chime in on. But how are we going to do that and budget our time to not interfere with the action on the field, on the court? That is, to me, when you when it's working right, it's artistic. It, it's it, it can be a thing of beauty to do it right. But you're, you're not going to do this long uh, enough where you don't have a mishap on that, where the timing does not work the way you perfectly wanted it to work out, where you're in the middle of a story and all of a sudden the producer in your ear says, got to go to break in five, four, three, two. But I didn't finish my story yet. Uh, maybe we'll pick it back up when we get back. Maybe we won't have time. All those things go into that. And, you know, sometimes you're just like air traffic control and you're trying to land this plane and tell that plane to leave and you're hoping that it all works out. And again, the more you do it, the better flow and feel for it I think you have. I feel like now I'm much better at that than I was 10 years ago. But I don't know if you ever perfect it because it's it's really hard to have that go 100% the way you want it to go. Outside of it being a real bucket list item for you getting to call Major League Baseball, what do you, when you look back at your time with the Braves, what do you really take away from that time and what you learned about baseball and the radio specifically? Well, you learn so much. First off, calling a college baseball game, which, which I already had done on radio and TV for a number of years and, and continue to do now with the SEC Network, uh, it's different. Everything about it is different. Uh, uh, the game itself, the strategy itself, uh, the environment, the what's what's riding on every law. I mean, a, a loss, as you guys know, in a college baseball game, uh, a, a regular season loss can be treated at times like a football game. Like, oh, my goodness, we lost this game. Uh, this is terrible. Let's fire the coach. Our team stinks. Blah, 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 blah. In Major League Baseball, it's one of 162. And I learned in that first year just how long 162 <laughs> games is. I started in March in spring training. Uh, started doing games with Mark Lemke and guys like that. And I was like, this is incredible. And I'm interviewing Chipper Jones and Bobby Cox. And then uh, by a game like 97, you're saying, wow, we still got 65 to go plus the postseason. It, it's just different. Um the things I remember, so many of the things I remember about that first year with the Braves was the, okay, are these, forget about the uh, the fan base, are the announcers going to accept me? Uh, I remember our, my first road trip, and I was about to do play-by-play -play with Don Sutton, and we were going to Pittsburgh, so we had three games at PNC Park. Then we get on the plane and go down to Miami, three games against the Marlins. And I had never been on a – I'd been I, when I did Carolina Panther preseason games, I'd been on an NFL charter. 
but I'd never been on a major league baseball charter up to that point. Uh, I want to make sure what, what do I wear? What's the, you know, at that time you got to wear a coat. Okay. I got that. Uh, I'm about to sit down. Joe Simpson, who at the time was doing television, uh, says, Mike, uh, let me, let me grab that jacket for you to put it in the overhead. He said, do you know how to properly fold a jacket? And I'm thinking, wow, this guy's teaching me now travel fashion tips. This is fantastic. And he <laughs> takes a jacket and he's like, first you fold it this way. And then you fold it horizontally. And then you fold it again vertically. And then you know what you do, Mike? What do you think you do next? I, I, don't, I don't know, Joe. What do you do? And he cocks back his arm and he tosses it as hard as he can in the overhead. He said, that's how you do it, Mike. I said, okay. I got Everybody starts laughing. Chip Carey's laughing. Don Sutton's laughing. That was their first way of saying, hey, you're one of the guys now. Then Don Sutton, uh, before we go to the ballpark from the hotel that first day, and needless to say, I'm nervous. Uh, this is a Hall of Famer who's done broadcasting for 40 years, and I'm about to call my first Major League Baseball game on the radio, which just happens to be the largest radio network of any Major League team in baseball. And he says, Mike, I need to talk to you. I'm like, oh, boy, he's going he's gonna to – Tell me something like, don't talk too much. Don't you dare talk over me. Here are my innings. Here are your innings. I mean, I'm ready for him to give me the third degree. And he says, here's the most important thing I'm going to tell you. And don't you dare forget it. I said, you know, yes, sir. What, what is it, Don? And he goes, after the game, we're all going to go to the hotel bar. Everybody here drinks wine. Do you like wine? Yeah, I like wine. Good. You're going to drink wine with us. We're going to talk a little bit. Then we're going to have some more wine. Then we're going to talk some more. When the check comes, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm the rookie. I got to pay the check. He goes, don't you dare pay for the check. That's us, not you. You don't pay for anything when you're on the road with us. At that point, I was like, okay, I got Joe Simpson making jokes, <laughs> and I got Don Sutton telling me, uh, look, you don't pay for anything. And I'll just tell you one other a footnote to that. One of the first games I did went into extra innings. So I would do the middle innings, play by play. Don would do one through three, seven through nine. I would do four through six. The tenth inning comes. So I don't know what the rule is. Do I call this or does Don call this? So we're coming back from break, and Don looks at me and he goes, you know, Mike, it's a tenth inning. Normally, this is my inning. And I said, yeah, I understand. Absolutely. He goes, you take it away, kid. So I got to call the tenth inning. Braves had what turned out to be the, the game-winning home run. Brian McCann, top of the 10th. I called it, and uh, we got done. That was our first series together, and he said, took out his hand. He said, great job. You're going to be fine in this business. I was like, okay, I can die now. <laughs> this is fine. This is great. Good deal. Um, so stuff like that. I mean, just just memories like that. That year, they they won the final postseason slot in the final day. I, I called the post game. I did a post game show. They said, Mike, we need you to go interview the players in the locker room. So I go in the locker room with a remote microphone and there's champagne being poured all over my head trying to interview these guys. Chipper Jones, Brian McCann, uh, Freddie Freeman, Jason Hayward. And uh, I still have pictures of me just being drenched in champagne in the locker room. So it, it was just a surreal moment. And uh, I never wanted to give up football and basketball. I love all three. Uh, but, but that paved the way for me, I think in a lot of ways for, for where I am today. So those, those are moments I'll never forget. Those are really good memories from your time. So the Braves, and I imagine when you got to do those Panthers games, as you mentioned as well, you saw how the NFL was a lot different from what you've yeah. always done in college football. Yeah. I mean, it's so business. Like, um, there's not as much joking, there's, uh, uh, you know, I did those games for five years. First, it was John Fox, and then it was Ron Rivera, and and both very serious business-like guys. Um, I got to call Cam Newton's first games as a Carolina Panther in the preseason. He was a different cat, to say the least. But yeah, everything is just so regimented, so rigid. Uh, the NFL is is unlike any other animal it's just so different the way they uh, prepare the culture, the environment, but still it was a, it was just a, wow, is this really happening? Am I really, even though they were preseason games, we didn't treat them as such. 
every broadcast we did was not only shown live in Charlotte. I think we had 10 affiliates between Charlotte, Tennessee, Virginia, but also they replay all those games on the NFL network. And one of those games they replayed on the NFL network and the guy at Fox sports, not regional, but national in California saw it, contacted my agent and said, we really like this Mike guy. We want him to do our college football. I was not full-time with ESPN yet. So I didn't have a contract and they offered me big 12 football, uh, uh, the whole package, 13, 14 games a year. In fact, our first sideline reporter, my first two years was Laura Rutledge. <laughs> so the same guy that hired me, uh, hired Laura Rutledge when nobody knew who Laura Rutledge was. She was Laura McKeemum back then. So we worked together on big 12 football on, on Fox and our, our halftime studio was Marcus Allen and Kevin Frazier of Entertainment Tonight. <laughs> they put everything into their uh, broadcast. And I did it for four years, and I loved it. But the problem was there was no basketball for me at Fox. There was no baseball for me at Fox. And deep down, as much as I enjoy the Big 12, I'm an SEC guy. I want to do SEC. So I came back to ESPN and eventually became full-time. But all that came down to a guy watching me do Carolina Panthers preseason games to circle it back to, you know, your original question, which goes back to, you never know what, what opportunity is going to lead to another opportunity in this business, that game that you think you're doing. And maybe only a certain group of people are watching somebody else out there notices you and they have another opportunity for you. And that's kind of been the story of my career is just that the randomness of it all uh, to wind up in, in different gear. I never applied for the Braves job. Didn't even know there was an opening. I got it. Uh, the, the Panthers uh, gave me an opportunity to do games, and a guy from Fox in California sees a replay on the NFL Network and offers me Big 12 college football on Fox. None of these things were planned. They just worked out that way. How much do you go back and watch your games now? Because I feel like the games on the SEC network, they just kind of they, they rotate over and over again. At 3 a.m., there's some SEC football game going on, and you're probably the one calling it. So how much yeah. do you do you watch back your work even now? Well, what you're talking about happens a lot. I, I sometimes struggle sleeping, and <laughs> I'll just, especially after a game, I don't know about yeah. you guys, it's like you're emotionally uh, and mentally exhausted after a game, but you're still wired to the point you can't sleep. Yeah. It's like sensory overload. So a lot of times I'll do a game and I'll think to myself, oh, I just want to go back to the hotel and go to sleep. And then I can't sleep. And I'm just sitting there with the remote in my hand. And before I know it, they're replaying the game I just did. So I'm watching the game I just did at three o'clock in the morning and, and, and forcing myself to critique myself. Uh, that happens a good deal. They'll, they'll play. They'll replay games that, that I, uh, we've already done. And, and you get a chance to look at it then. I DVR every game I do. Um, I try to watch uh, as much of each game I do and and look at it with a critical eye. Honestly, the least favorite thing I've ever done in this business is being forced to watch and or listen to myself. I just get tired of hearing me. Uh, I, I, I don't like doing it. And so it, almost to the point where initially it made me uncomfortable. Uh, even if I thought it was a great broadcast, I don't want to hear it again. But I think you have to do that. I think you have to force yourself to put in that CD or whatever the technology might be, uh, put on that DVR, watch, listen, uh, see what you could have done better. Um, I, I think that's in a lot of ways the only way to get better. You, you have to you have to do it because, look, no matter what you are – no matter where you are, the jobs that you guys have. I mean, how often do you get somebody giving you feedback on how you did? You know, probably not that much, you know, because they have their own jobs to do. Uh, same thing at ESPN. I mean, I, I'll do 75 games in a given year. They don't have time to call me up after every broadcast and go, Mike, here's what you did well, and here's what you need to do better. You've got to do that yourself. Uh, you're, you're kind of your own coach in a lot of ways at this level. Uh, so I, to answer your question, I, I do it a good deal. It's never been something I enjoy doing. Um, but I feel like it's a necessary evil. 
Let me ask you this. How would you describe your style on the air? And, and what I'm trying to do now is try to show a little bit more personality, be a little bit more conversational, a little less broadcastery. I know that's not a word, but I'll throw that uh, in there. By the way, I don't know if you like my lighting right now. It's very nice in here. <laughs> yeah, Fantastic. It's got kind of a Shawshank redemption feel to it. <laughs> I look like Dracula right now at this lighting. But uh, what um, what is your style? Is it is it conversation? Like what what do you want to be when you go on the air, Mike? I, I think the, the the best way for me, and I would tell anybody uh, in this business that's starting out or, or looking to, to grow and, and develop more polish, kind of capture your own voice, your own identity, the, the number one thing that I see and hear now that to me is problematic is guys trying to impersonate other announcers. Be you. Don't listen to somebody else and go, well, he made it big. So I guess I should just replicate what he does. Use all of his catchphrases, uh, try and sound like he does, try and, uh, talk like he does, try and have the same jokes that he does. You know, I I've spent my whole life just about in, in the Southeast. So I didn't grow up listening to Vince Scully, but from what I hear, every radio announcer on the left coast they all grew up trying to sound like Vince Scully. Well, there's only one Vince Scully. You're not going to be Vince Scully. He's got a certain unique voice, an incredible delivery, storytelling ability off the charts. You can try and impersonate that, but you're not going to be fool anybody. You're not Vince Scully. Um, so don't try and impersonate what you think everybody wants to hear. Be yourself. Bring your own personality to it. If you have a good sense of humor, use your sense of humor. Uh, don't take yourself too seriously. I, I feel like now I'm in a place where it's less about, I got to prove this, I got to prove that. I feel like it's more about just be me. And I've never been a guy who's overly what I call robotic. Uh, I, I've, uh, you know, there are a lot of guys out there and, you know, they, they all seem to come from the same broadcasting school. Uh, they all seem to to sound alike and talk alike. And it's like somebody just took them uh, out of uh, broadcasting school, XYZ, we won't name one, and let's just put them through a conveyor belt and they're all gonna look alike, sound alike, talk alike, and I have the same philosophy on everything. And uh, and they're just like robots. And I, I to me, I don't want that. I, I, I want a guy who's unique, uh, who's true to himself, it's his actual voice, not his broadcasting voice, but his actual voice. Some people have a naturally good voice and you don't have to uh, overmodulate or do this or do that. Others feel like they've got to put on a voice every time they do a game. Uh, yet others are thinking, okay, uh, this guy made Sports Center by doing an over the top, uh, incredibly loud and zany call. Well, that's what I got to do if I'm going to get any attention. No. Now, just be true. Uh, just because you're the loudest guy in the room or the most hyped up guy, that doesn't mean you're the best play-by-play -play guy. Uh, just do what feels right. Let it come to you. Don't force yourself on it. And, and that's the best advice I would give to any announcer. When you get to the point where you're comfortable enough in your own skin and your own delivery and you're not trying to be something else. So for me, uh, I, I've always been uh, you know, a little bit of a wise guy. I'll bring some sarcasm to the, to the platform from time to time. Some people like that. Some people don't. Uh, I, I'm enthusiastic and passionate in my call, but I never want to be uh, accused of being over the top and just um, uh, looking to make that sports center, you know, highlight reel uh, just because I went nuts over a given call. To me, that's disingenuous and, and I don't like it. Um, and other than that, you know, when I broadcast a game, my sound is my sound. I feel like I've been fortunate enough to have a pretty good voice to work with where I don't have to uh, try and seek out another sound. And I feel like the knowledge is already there. The preparation is there. So after that, I don't have to fake anything. I can just do it. And when you, when you have that feeling and you have that feeling of, of kind of freedom, if you will, behind the mic, that's when this job becomes the most enjoyable. 
Well, you're getting ready for a Florida football game uh, on against Mizzou coming up this weekend. Uh, what can you tell us about your preparation for football? And then if you have your spotting chart, we'd love to see it. Just hold up to the camera and uh, kind of see what's important to put on your board. Let me see that Kyle Trask part of the chart there. Yeah. yeah. So now keep, keep this in mind. Uh, can you see this? That's good. You well, now you probably you you've probably seen this before. Uh, my my penmanship is the worst in the history of mankind. It's kind of like a kind of got a serial killer vibe. Uh, <laughs> so I I hire somebody to actually print it out. A lot of our announcers do that. Uh, so the guy that did this board, I think, used to do uh, Brent Musburger's, and does a good job. What this board looks like now versus what it'll look like come Saturday, I will write notes all over the board. Um, when we meet with the coaches, or in this case, talk with the coaches uh, tomorrow, that will all be done. Uh, uh, that will all be done on my board. I don't like having a bunch of notebooks and loose papers all over the place. If I can fit 90% of what I have on that board, that makes me happy, and I know where everything is. So there'll be scribble all over the place. So the board looks nice now. It's not going to look as pretty once I do the game. Final one for me, Mike. Once you go into those Zoom meetings, so here Dan Mullen, he sits in on the meeting. What are the questions that you want to ask? How much is your analyst taking over that process and asking most of the X and O questions? Like, What's that balance like of who's asking what and who gets the bulk of the questions? I generally start things off. I, I go big picture and let let the analysts kind of magnify it and do more of a micro look than a macro look. Uh, I, I want to know the general questions. I want to get some background on some players. Uh, I want to know more, again, storytelling. Like, for example, Florida has the best tight end in the country in Kyle Pitts. I've got to be honest with you, I don't know much about Kyle Pitts, the person. Uh, I know where he's from. I know he's six foot six. I know he's got seven touchdowns, but I don't know much about him personally. I haven't seen him interviewed much. Uh, I want to know more about Kyle Pitts. My analyst Hudson Mason, he'll break down. You know, how do you how do you attack a four two five defense from Missouri? Uh, are you going to blitz lets on defense because you got torched against Texas A and M? I let him take care of most of that. So I'm I'm more of the the periphery stuff. He's more of the nuts and bolts of the, of the X's and O's of the, of the actual game. And then we just kind of look at each other back and forth. You got this one, I got that one. And it should be just a general flow, just a kind of like a casual conversation, not too formal. All right, and then the last one for me, uh, just when you look at what you've been able to do in your career, just what are you most proud of at this point? You've been able to have a lot of great different experiences, but at the end of the day, what are you most proud of what you've accomplished so far and what do you still hope to accomplish down the road? I think for me, uh, what I'm most proud of is is being able to have success at in different markets, at different levels, with different teams. Uh, if you would have told me that at this stage I would have already had a taste of NFL, Major League Baseball, uh, two TV networks, one radio network, do a talk show for 15 years, which which still helps me in broadcasting today. Um, I, I would have said that's really I don't think I'm going to do that much. I mean, I'd be happy to do like half of that, but I don't I don't see where I'm going to be able to do that much. Um, but that's just the way it's worked out for other guys. Their number one thing in, is is being the the radio voice of a premier program their entire career. And that's great, too. I, I mean, I would gladly take that. You know, I, I'd, I'd gladly take Eli Gold's career being the voice of the Crimson Tide for half my life or. Uh, what Mick Hubert's doing uh, here at the University of Florida. I mean, those are great gigs. Uh, but for me, I'm glad I got a taste of everything. I can never look back and say, if only I got to do one Major League Baseball on game on radio, I did it. If only I got to do a little bit of NFL, I did it. If only I got to be a voice of a major college, I did it. So uh, for me, it's the, the variety pack that I've been able to uh, uh, accomplish and, and get a taste of. And then you know, to have it culminate all with with SEC, with the conference that I grew up as a fan of, went to one school, brought, broadcasted games for another, and now be able to do SEC games for an SEC network, that's almost like a fairy tale ending for me. Uh, and, and that's just the perfect way. If I don't do anything else, uh, that'll be just fine for me because this was always a goal of mine. 
Well, you do a terrific job, and we've enjoyed watching you over Appreciate the years and look forward to watching you for many, many more uh, covering SEC sports. Just thank you for your time today. We really enjoyed it, Mike. Guys, thank you. I, I, I mean this. Like, this is really cool what you guys are doing. Uh, it, it's it's kind of unique. And to have – I've done a lot of these interviews for people who don't do what I do. You guys do it, and you understand it, and you have an appreciation for it. So this is the kind of talk that, you know, I don't ordinarily get to have. I think it's great. Uh, I enjoy your segment. I watch it from time to time, and uh, glad you invited me on. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. And go Gators. You can't say that this weekend because you're new. <laughs> I can't, but you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it for you. I'll say go good game. How about that? Okay. I'll bounce it out. M-I-Z-Z-O-U. <laughs> Our there thanks to Mike Morgan, and thank you, all, all right, of guys. you for watching at Broadcaster Hour.